home, let me pray for us. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that speaks powerfully to us and we ask now that your spirit would open our eyes and ears that we may hear what it is you are saying to us and that we may be transformed uh, to become more like your son Jesus in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, uh, I'm sure if I asked you to think of the most arrogant person you have ever met, it wouldn't take you too long to start feeling a little bit angry uh, and remember some boss you had or uh, some neighbour or friend who just thought they were wonderful and you knew, like everyone else, that maybe that wasn't, too, uh, that wasn't very true at all. To be arrogant, says the dictionary, is to have an attitude of superiority manifested in an overbearing manner or in presumptuous claims or assumptions. And uh, when arrogance is mixed with power, as it can so often be, it can have devastating consequences. Uh, A great story uh, from the Second World War, uh, you'll know of the Japanese invasion of Pearl Harbour in 1941. Well, there were two privates, lowly ranked men in the army, but with great experience in reading radars. And as they were looking at their radar, they saw a large blip on their radar screen, which they thought was probably 50 enemy planes coming their way. And so, uh, as any good soldier does, they radioed their chain of command, uh, who was a lieutenant, newly uh, installed, not very experienced, uh, and who uh, said to the men, as they told him the bad news, uh, don't worry about that. Uh, I'm sure it's just uh, some of our men uh, flying home, some of our own planes, nothing to see, nothing to worry about, carry on, lads. Uh, and, of course, they uh, did carry on and no, no warnings were raised and we all know what happened. That lieutenant's arrogance led to probably a lot larger loss of life than perhaps might have been if they'd had just that little bit of extra time to prepare. Well, in Daniel chapter 5, we meet an arrogant leader. His name... King Belshazzar. And of course, if you've been with us for the last few weeks, at this moment when we get to chapter 5 and verse 1 starts with the words King Belshazzar, I hope like me you sort of go, hang on a second, I thought Nebuchadnezzar was the king. Uh, What's going on here? Who's this King Belshazzar? What's going on? Well, Uh, What is happening is uh, where the book of Daniel is transporting us uh, a little bit further on into the future. And we know from other places that King Nebuchadnezzar, a real historical figure, uh, because we're dealing with uh, a a real historical person uh, in the book of Daniel in the Old Testament, but King Nebuchadnezzar, he died in the year 562 BC after 43 years on the throne. He was this long-reigning monarch who uh, established this great kingdom, the Babylonian Empire. And uh, what often happens, as we see throughout history, is when uh, that long-reigning monarch dies, political turmoil ensues. Uh, 
which is, just as a total, total aside, uh, uh, an interesting thing to think about when you think about our own uh, circumstances. Nonetheless, uh, following King Nebuchadnezzar's death, there's this tumultuous political situation. His first son, who obviously takes over, gets assassinated by his brother-in-law. Uh, and then uh, he dies, this brother-in-law who assassinated the other guy, his son takes over, he lasts one month before there's a conspiracy in the court, they kill him and then they put this guy on the throne called Nabonidus uh, and uh, he uh, is a, not a very good king but he's part of this uh, gang uh, and he rules but uh, people think he was sort of a bit too interested in the wrong god uh, and so basically they ship him off to uh, like an a, a idyllic kind of oasis and say, yeah, you're the king, go be the king out there with your son God uh, and they put his son in charge, Belshazzar. So when Nabonius becomes king, that's about seven years after Nebuchadnezzar's death and we've gone through, what, about three kings' deaths and whatever in those seven years, having had 43 years of one king. And Belshazzar, well, he's not really the king, but he is the king uh, in all uh, uh, effective purposes. And basically, uh, this king Belshazzar is an arrogant fool. An arrogant fool because he doesn't listen to history and he thinks he knows what's best. In fact, as it happens, as you uh, heard Graham read the story, we, we get a sense of just how arrogant King Belshazzar must have been because, uh, as we know at the end of the story, which is a little bit of a spoiler, but you've heard the story anyway, uh, King Belshazzar dies, right, at, at, the, at that night, at the, at the end of his banquet. That night, he's killed and uh, his kingdom conquered. And people suspect that uh, he's actually just thinking, how good is this city I live in? It's so big and strong, and it did have big and strong walls. No one will ever, ever take me over, even though it's highly likely that he knew outside the city walls were the Medes and the Persians, about, like, like sieging the city. But he's like, no, no, I'll have this awesome banquet. Uh, it'll be fine, nothing can go wrong. I'm the king of Babylon. Arrogance in the extreme. And, of course, we see at the start of this story his arrogance in, at, in the middle of this party. He gets uh, the gold objects from the temple in Jerusalem and he uh, begins to, to use them in a way that uh, desecrates them and is, is not honouring to them. Uh, another sign of just how full of himself and, and, and drunk on the, on the power and, the, and his own self-importance. He takes these holy objects from the Israel kingdom uh, and he uses them not to worship the God of Israel, but to worship the gods of created things. And as he's doing all this, out of nowhere, it seems, in verse 5 and 6, a terrifying event. I mean, imagine it. You're there, you're having a grand old time, partying on hard, and then suddenly, we read, 
the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand of the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale and he was so frightened that his leg became weak and his knees were knocking. You might have heard of the phrase, the writings on the wall. That's like, that's this. That phrase comes from this story because uh, there he is uh, enjoying himself the hand of God comes and writes on the wall and by the end of the story, he's dead. The writing's on the wall. When, when things uh, are, are looking bad, it's because the writing's on the wall. It's the story of King Belshazzar, which has seeped into our popular culture today. I wonder, next time someone says that to you, you might ask them, do you know it's from the Bible? Uh, and then you might be able to have some sort of interesting conversation with them about the Scriptures. Nonetheless, uh, we then see a familiar story to us as students of the book of Daniel, don't we? Because uh, as these fingers come down and, and written something on the wall, what does the king do? Just like Nebuchadnezzar did in chapters 2 and in chapter 4, he reaches out to the Babylonian wise men first. And he offers them a big reward, which is, I guess, that's a step up on Nebuchadnezzar, who used to just offer to cut them into pieces. This time, they're offered a, a, a big reward, uh, and they are proved to be as useless as always. We read in verse 7, The king summoned the enchanters, astrologers, and diviners, and he said to these wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed, in purple and have a gold chain placed around his neck and he will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in but they could not read the writing or tell the king what it meant. And of course we then read that this makes the king even more terrified. He's really worried as you, as you would rightly expect. This must be an important message. And as he's sitting there and as he's got his useless wise men in front of him, uh, we, we read the queen or the queen mother comes in. And uh, she's, you know, this, this, this older woman who, who has history, who knows the history and who reminds King Belshazzar about King Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel. And of course, actually... King Belshazzar ought to have known this too, right? Because when a monarch rules for 43 years and establishes a kingdom, uh, you know his story. And you know that, uh, they would know that there was this time where he had this vision and then a year later it came true where he went kind of mad and crazy and lived with the animals and then he turned to the God of Israel in deep humility, because God had humbled him, and said, this is God and I must serve him. But King Belshazzar would know the story of King Nebuchadnezzar and how God, uh, time and time again, tried to show Nebuchadnezzar who was truly God and how eventually he figured it out. He'd know that. But he's, he's forgotten, or I think more likely in his arrogance, he has just chosen to carry on doing his own thing in his own way because he's the sovereign king now who's in control. 
And the Queen Mother comes, reminds him a little of the history of the kingdom, reminds him about Daniel. She says uh, that Daniel, whom the king called Belteshazzar, which is very close to Belshazzar, was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding, but also the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles and solve problems. Call for Daniel and he will tell you what the writing means. The Queen says, remember your history, go get Daniel, he's still here, go get him, see what he can do. And so the king does. And at this point, we've got this great little piece of irony in the story because uh, uh, the, the story opens with King Belshazzar mocking Israel, mocking Israel's God by having this big party and, and drinking out of the gold from the temple as if it doesn't matter and worshipping idols. And now as this finger has come and written on the wall and he's terrified and he doesn't know what to do and none of those gods can help him, he's forced to go to Daniel, the one who worships the God he's just been uh, uh, shamelessly mocking. He's at the mercy, verse 13, of Daniel, an exile from Judah. And in verses 14 to 16, he asks if Daniel can interpret the writing and, the prom- and promises him that reward of being third highest in the kingdom. And Daniel refuses the reward, but accepts the job nonetheless, we read in verse 17. And Daniel, a bit like the queen, uh, uh, begins to, as, as he gets to interpreting the dream, starts by reminding King Belshazzar of the story that he ought to have known. The story of Nebuchadnezzar, the great king who was given power and authority by God but got so arrogant and prideful that he was stripped from his glory. We read about that in chapter 4. He was humbled until he acknowledged that God was the sovereign king. And Daniel says, verse 22, but you, Belshazzar, his son, you have not humbled yourself though you knew, knew all this. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines drank wine from them. You praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand, but you did not honour the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Therefore, he sent the hand that wrote the inscription. You, You arrogant fool. You provoked God and his wrath by not acknowledging him and worshipping idols with the very things that were meant for the worship of him. You think you're in control. Well, tonight, things have come home to roost. And the hand writes, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Parson. And Daniel says, this is what it means. Verse 26, Mene, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Verse 27, Tekel, you have been weighed out on the scales and found wanting. Verse 28, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. And we read that Daniel is rewarded, he's honoured for his interpretation and then that very night, the dream comes true. Verse 30, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age 
of 62. What a story. What a night to go from, uh, uh, you know, just having the biggest party you can imagine, uh, enjoying the finest things, uh, getting in some of the loot of your kingdom that you've stolen from other places and uh, kind of mocking those pathetic people and just having a grand old time. Uh, Suddenly there's this supernatural event which has terrified you, you hear what it means, you think, gee, I wonder if that's right, and then you're dead. Judged. God has shown you who is boss. And what we see in this story in chapter 5 really is, the, the, I guess, the, the contrast or the, the opposite of the story in chapter 4. Because in chapter 4 we had two, a proud and arrogant king. A proud and arrogant king who ought to have known better. He'd seen Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego be rescued from the fire. He'd seen the prophet Daniel uh, not only interpret a dream, but know what the dream was without anyone telling him. He'd had all these moments to realise that maybe he wasn't as important as he thought he was, and he, and he failed to, to grasp it, and so God humbled him. And in the midst of uh, kind of his deepest despair, he turns to God and acknowledges that God is sovereign and he is not. God humbles him and he turns to God. And in chapter 5, we have a proud and arrogant king who knew that story. He knew who God was. He knew how God had worked in the life of Nebuchadnezzar. And yet, he chooses this night to mock the God of Israel, the sovereign God of the world. And he is humbled, judged, and removed. He fails to humble himself, and so God humbles him, judges him, destroys him. And in the two stories in chapter 4 and chapter 5, we have two different ways of responding to God, don't we? We have uh, uh, been humbling ourselves uh, under God's sovereign hand or ignoring God and allowing Him to humble us. And last week... As we reflect on chapter 4, and I encourage you to go back and have a listen if you weren't here, but we talked a lot about God's sovereignty. And we started thinking about what it means for God to be in charge and for us as human beings to to make decisions, to have agency. We talked about uh, how God's sovereign will is worked out through human agency and how the Bible holds Uh, these two things together, that that God is indeed sovereign and all-powerful and in control, and yet uh, we as human beings have have real choices to make for which we can be held responsible. And we saw how, uh, though that can be very confusing, uh, our job is not to try and and, um, understand the deep things of God, but rather worship God and respond to his sovereign will for our lives, which is our salvation in Christ Jesus, if we 
uh, follow him. And these two stories of these two kings actually show us, don't they, the, the two ways that life can go. Because God is still God. He hasn't changed since the story of Daniel in 550 BC-ish. He's the same God now in 2020 AD. He's the God who continues to be in control of this world, judging people for their sin and calling people to humble themselves before him or he will humble them. King Belshazzar had a choice. He could have carried on from King Nebuchadnezzar in acknowledging God, but he didn't. He knew better than to mock God, but God brought judgment on him. You see, King Belshazzar, he knew the history of his kingdom. Daniel tells him that in, as he's about to interpret the dream. And yet he ignored the truth. It's not enough just to know. But actually we need to respond. We see this, don't we, uh, in other facets of life, don't we, where knowledge can, can, can lead to arrogance and pride instead of uh, a, a, a humble sense of, of who we are. So we, we see people who say, oh, I'm so educated, that's why I vote this way, and if, you, if, you, if everyone else was as educated as me, they'd vote this way too. That's, that's a classic way where we see knowledge puffing up into arrogance. Or in the church, it often works like this, I'm so educated, I've studied so much, I know better than to believe in, in primitive things like a God who judges or a, a, a God who would require sacrifice. Or, uh, that's primitive stuff and, and I know things and I've, I've learnt uh, better ways, smarter ways. Knowledge that puffs up and actually misses the point. And even if you, if you don't go that far, you can know a lot about God and yet totally ignore Him. I had a friend at school who, uh, my friend and I, we were Christians, he was not, uh, this other friend, and uh, he, we worked long and hard on trying to teach this guy uh, about Jesus because he was kind of interested. And... Uh, by the end of our kind of endeavours, our friend could give perfect answers. Right? So you could say to him, who created the world? And he could say, God did. And he'd say, and, and what's the pr big problem in the world? And he'd say, sin is. And he'd say, and what's the solution? And he could say, uh, having faith in Jesus Christ who died so that we might live. And you say, well, what's our response to that? It's like to have faith and believe and carry on in, in, in daily repentance and faith. Like, top-notch answers. He was all over it. And yet he just didn't care. He just did not care. He just, he knew exactly what the answers were, but he just thought it had no relevance to his life whatsoever. Just didn't think it was real, didn't care about it, wanted to do his own thing. Thanks for teaching me what you believe. 
He knew the truth, but knowledge wasn't enough. I think that he was almost a little like uh, King Belshazzar, who, who, who knew the truth and yet wanted to do his own thing. And the truth is that all of us actually here today know enough. We know that God is sovereign. We know that God is in control. We know that God will hold us responsible for our lives. And the question is not, do we know that? The question is, which king will, be, will we be like? Are we going to be like Nebuchadnezzar, who eventually humbles himself and seeks God, or will we be like Belshazzar, who just carry on in our own merriment until one day God humbles us? Well, I want to implore you today not to be like Belshazzar. And in 2020, this side of the cross, the way we humble ourselves is by looking to that cross, looking to Jesus, and seeing there the King of the world slain so that you and I might live, humbling ourselves before Jesus, our crucified King, admitting that we need His help, that we need His salvation, that we need His forgiveness. That can be hard to do because it requires humility. We have to humble ourselves and admit we can't earn our way into heaven. We can't save ourselves. Instead, we humbly seek God's free gift of salvation to all who believe. And when we do that, we then daily renew our trust and faith in Him. Daniel's chapter 4 and 5, they tell us this story of these two kings who thought they were God, who thought they were worth worshipping, who thought they were powerful enough to ignore God and both of the kings found out the hard way that they are not God. But the truth is, isn't it, it's not actually just kings who are prone to thinking they're God. Actually, you and I do that too. It's so easy, particularly in our Western world, to think that I am king of my life. I mean, the world tells us that to be free is to have control over your ability to make choices and that you should be able to choose to do whatever you want and that a good society is one that enables you to do whatever you want because you are king.
But we're not all Nebuchadnezzar's and Belshazzar's. We're not all kings. We're not gods. God is. We don't know better than God. And in fact, the life we want by seeking to put ourselves first and make every sort of choice we could possibly want to make is a life we'll never achieve on our own. The good life, the best life, the full life. Jesus says, come to me and I will give you life and life to the full. So, instead of drinking the Kool-Aid and believing that you are God, how about this? Learn from our two kings in Daniel and be like Nebuchadnezzar who in the despair of having sought to live life by himself now finds himself totally desperate, turns to God and humbles himself. Let me encourage you, let me implore you to humble yourself, to stop trying to be God of your life and to ask him to be your king. And if you want to know more about what that means, come and see me after the service today because Jesus is the kindest and greatest king that you could ever have. Well, let me just conclude by praying for us. Heavenly Father, I thank you for uh, the story of King Nebuchadnezzar and King Belshazzar. And Father, I pray today that you would help us to walk away from the desire to rule our own lives, to be our own little kings. And instead, you would uh, cause us to humble ourselves before you and to put our faith and trust in the true king, the crucified King Jesus, who died so that we might live. Lord, may we find the fullness of life we all so deeply desire in you. And we pray, Lord, today that you would strengthen each of us in our journey with trying to figure out what it means to live as you, with you as king of our life. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.